Good morning, everyone. It's good to see a few more people Sunday by Sunday as we're kind of starting the slow climb out of full-on summer mode. Uh, as, as Andrew said, I'm Pastor Josh. For those of you that might be visiting with us today, uh, it's good to have you here. And uh, thanks for being here. Uh, as well as Andrew said, this is, this is my last Sunday as executive pastor before stepping into the, the lead role on a full-time basis, uh, kind of starting in the middle of this week. And uh, as Andrew mentioned as well, we are, we are in the Psalms for summertime. It's a nice, nice way to have a sermon series, but so that um, when people come and go on holidays, we don't necessarily have to have one week building on the next, on the next uh, as we would if we were going through, say, one of Paul's letters, or as we were recently, the Sermon on the Mount. So have you ever heard any of those kind of would-you-rather questions? They can kind of range from, they start at trivial things, right? This cabin and the land connected to it can be yours for free, but you can never watch football again. Would you do it? Well, if watching football was limited only to watching the Rough Riders, I think it would be a no-brainer. <laughs> hey, that, that game yesterday was, was something else. Uh, th- these kind of questions get more serious, though. Um, Would you rather lose all of your money and valuables or all of the pictures that you have ever taken? Or here's one to think about. Would you rather go to jail for four years for something you didn't do or get away with something horrible you did but always live with the fear of being caught? That's deep. Would you rather have an easy job working for someone else or work for yourself but work incredibly hard? Or, this is very serious, would you rather die in 20 years with no regrets or die in 50 years with many regrets? Would you rather know when you're going to die or would you rather know how you're going to die? Those are pretty deep, pretty, pretty big questions. One of the books on my reading list coming up is uh, The Accidental President, Harry Truman and the Four Months That Changed the World. It tells the story of regular guy, Harry S. Truman, who early on in his life, up until kind of middle age, was kind of just a failure. Uh, He was a failed businessman. He farmed, but didn't have much success in that. But then in just a few short years, he went from this guy no one had ever heard of to being a United States senator. And then he became vice president of the United States because all the other candidates kind of had some serious issues and he was going to be the safe candidate. And so he was FDR's vice president in the closing months of World War II. And I don't know how much some of you are American perhaps or, or you know a little bit about American history or World War II history. FDR was ill at this point. He won his last election as president, but just a few weeks later... Franklin Delano Roosevelt died of a stroke, tragically, and, as happens in that system, the vice president then assumes the role of president, and in wartime, of course, that includes commander-in-chief. So this guy nobody's ever heard of is handed the role of most powerful man in the world, is handed the responsibility for winning World War II, and then after he's sworn in, some guy from the Pentagon tugs at his sleeve and takes him aside and says, Mr. President, sir, we've been working on this secret weapon called the atomic bomb. No one had told him that there was this thing they were going to build called the atomic bomb up until he was sworn in as president. And then, of course, the question becomes, do you use this? That's his question. And it's been the debate ever since. 
Truman made what was arguably the most difficult decision that any leader would have to make, whether you use this ultimate weapon of mass destruction. And of course, we know from history that he did. And we'll never know how things might have turned out otherwise. There's debates that go back and forth of whether Japan could have been forced to surrender. Uh, There's debates about would more people have died, Americans and Japanese, in a land invasion of Japan, like like, uh, the Allies did on D-Day in Normandy. And then, of course, there was the fallout, literal fallout, and then the historical fallout of using this, right, of the Cold War and all of the things that happened because of this one decision to go ahead and use this. And we're still affected in world politics today, and the debate goes on. But thinking about having to make a decision like that and think about the things that hang in the balance. King David presents us with another very important decision in the psalm we're going to look at today, but it's actually something that gets a little bit lost in the issues we normally want to raise upon reading it. In any case, Psalm 19, if you want to turn there, and uh, once you've turned there, we'll stand to hear from God's word as we normally do for our sermon passage. This psalm raises a great passage. Go ahead and stand great passion that David has and many of the other psalm writers, some of them known and some of them not known. And that passion is for God's word, God's revelation. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord my rock and my redeemer. This is God's word. You can have a seat. Discussions of of Psalm 19 are often broken into two sections. In fact, if you go online looking for sermons, you often get uh, two sermons on this one psalm. On the beginning, the heavens declare the glory of God, and then perhaps another message on the second portion, the law of the Lord is perfect. And it's obvious to see why people would do that. The first portion of the psalm talks about God revealing himself uh, through nature, through his created world what we often call a general revelation or natural revelation. And then the latter portion of the psalm talks about how God reveals himself through his word. In David's case, specifically through the law. And we would usually call that special revelation. 
There are lots of interesting discussions we can have about these two and how they work and cosmological arguments for the existence of God and so forth. You know, the fine-tuning of the universe and all that or even the conditions on our planet that even support life. They're interesting, of course, and I believe it can be beneficial to study them, but we need to keep a couple of things in mind in this regard. First of all, King David didn't know any of these things. He didn't know any of the facts about modern astronomy and astrophysics, climatology. He didn't know about the vast size of stars or how far away the distant galaxies were or the delicate balancing of our world's climate because of its distance from the sun and its tilt on its axis and all of that. Our planet's magnetic fields that keep radiation away. But he did have one advantage that that some of us don't have in our modern world. He spent a lot of time outdoors in both day and night Uh, in his younger years as a shepherd, keeping watch, looking after his sheep, spending lots of time outside, and and that without the distraction of any artificial light. Long before Henry Thoreau was hanging out at Walden Pond, or Annie Dillard was spending time at Tinker Creek, or Wendell Berry was dabbling in farming at Lane's Landing, David was out there keeping his sheep, observing God's patterns of his providence in the natural world, and meditating on what it all meant. Now, natural revelation, it it only gets us so far. Now, David is impressed and even awestruck. How can't you help but exclaim at the beauty of the sunrise or, or seeing the beauty of the Milky Way on a clear night? What does it all mean? What do we take away from that? Well, the psalm says it reveals the glory of God. Or as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And of course, even there, we're we're cheating a bit because we're already appealing to God's special revelation to tell us about how natural revelation even can benefit us. Did you see that? So what can we know from natural revelation? Well, we can know that there is a powerful creator God. And that's impressive, Certainly, but it doesn't exactly get us very far, right? Because remember what Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 1. The whole point of Romans chapter 1 is even though God's eternal power and his majesty and his divine nature are on display in the created world, what do we tend to do as humans? We don't worship him as we should and we make idols and worship them instead. As impressive as the natural world is, the most it can tell us is that there is a God. It can't tell us who he is. Even if it can tell us about him, it can't help us to actually know him. We can even see this in the way David names God in this psalm. In verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and there he just uses the generic Hebrew term for God. But then as he moves on into the latter part of the psalm, starting in verse 7, he uses the revealed covenant name of God, Yahweh, I am. And that's where we want to spend the bulk of our time, in the revelation that God has given to us, the law of the Lord. So he turns from his discussion about God's world to a discussion of God's word. That's where his passion truly lies. As you can see, he really gets into this tight poetic structure talking about God's word. And that's where we'll spend the bulk of our time today. And that's also where we kind of find this very demanding choice It's kind of hiding in plain sight. And as I mentioned, it is poetry, and so it's important to look at the structure 
of this portion. We have a number of statements that have to do with God's words, such as God's rule, the law of the Lord, his commands. Each of those is then followed by a description, such as pure or clean or perfect. And these, in turn, are followed by results, enlightening the eyes, rejoicing the heart, making wise the simple. And there are six of these, which are then followed by a couple of lines of summary. The law of the Lord, he starts off by saying, is perfect, reviving the soul. God's law, his Torah, his teaching, his instruction is without fault and completely sound, wholesome, and of utmost integrity. And it revives, or depending on your translation, restores, refreshes the soul. I'd like to just just park on this for a moment. When we hear words like restoring, refreshing, reviving, or renewing, we tend to get really quite psychological or quite emotional. We understand it often to mean that God's word, when we read it, it'll provide us with a, a sense of peace or calm. But the Hebrew words here are a bit more interesting than that. The word translated reviving here is from a root word with a very broad range of meaning. It de- the meaning of it really depends a lot on the form and the context. The basic meaning, though, is to turn. And depending on how it's used, it can mean things like restore or repent, depending on whether the actor is us or the actor is God. In a theological sense, it often means turn back to God. If any of you have ever been in, in any of Ken Ginter's classes over the years, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, right? When Israel goes into exile and they turn back to God and God turns them back to himself, It's the same word that's being used here. In other words, if God restores or refreshes our soul, he does so not by just kind of allowing us to download some kind of sense of refreshment straight from the cloud. He restores or refreshes our soul by turning us back to himself, by realigning our hearts and our lives with what he says in his word. If we find restoration and refreshment It's because we find realignment with God's word and the truth that it contains and it realigns us into right relationship with him. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. This is legal language. The testimony about God that we find in scripture, that is scripture's witness to who God is that tells us about his character and how he acts in the world, what we read here is reliable. It is sure. It's a trustworthy account of who God is, and it can make a simple person wise. Simple is a common term in the wisdom literature, and it's not exactly a desirable place to be, but it's not exactly sinful either. Uh, Typically, in the wisdom literature, especially Proverbs, the simple person is young and inexperienced and is open to all sorts of influences. That's the root meaning of the word here, an open person. Someone who's maybe a little bit too open for their own good, right? They're open to good influences, but they're also open to bad and sinful influences. And this is the whole tension in the first ten chapters of the book of Proverbs, right? You've got Dame Folly and you've got Lady Wisdom, and they're calling out to the simple young man, and the tension is, Who's he going to side with? Is he going to side with the way of of folly and sin? Or is he going to side with the way of wisdom and righteousness? And David here says, the law of the Lord is what makes the difference. It makes the simple person wise. 
And the great question for anyone in this stage of life, as a young and, and open person, is what's going to fill that void that, that is lacking because of lack of experience and lack of wisdom? You know, wisdom in the Bible is moral, but it's, a, it's about a lot more than just don't drink that beer or, or don't watch that music video. It's about discerning the fundamental realities of life, the world, God, humanity, sin, redemption, right? Are humans basically good or basically fallen? Do you follow your heart or is your heart deceptive above all things? Do you do what feels good now or do you do what is right in the long term? Is the good life to be found in aligning yourself with true and trusted models of conduct and morality or just in constructing those for yourself? So what will fill that void? The the testimony that we find in Scripture about God and ultimate reality and humanity or cultural assumptions that just come like a fire hose now through social media and, and the internet, television, and all the rest. It's just a torrent that's telling us how we should live. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Remember how the Psalms start, Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly and so forth, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Different words, but same idea. True joy and delight deep in your soul is it's not to be found in acquiring stuff or experiences, but in conforming your life to God's revealed way of living. This matters in a culture where literally everything seems to be measured by how much ad revenue it generates, right? Let me say that again. Literally everything online in particular is its success is measured by how much ad revenue it generates. Why do you think YouTube and Facebook and all the rest of these things are free? Because they have ads that pay for them. And the whole point of them is to get you to stay on their sites longer so you see more ads. And what is the purpose of ads? To sell you things that promise to make your life better and provide you with happiness and contentment if you buy their product or their service. Now, can some of these things and some of these experiences bring us a measure of, of happiness and contentment? Sure. I think we all have a few treasured possessions that are things that, that we love, maybe things that were handed down to us by our parents or grandparents. Uh, some things that have been great experiences for us, a vacation that was particularly restorative, those kind of experiences. But they don't bring us ultimate joy and peace in our hearts, in the deep center of our beings, where it truly, truly matters. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Ever been in a, in a dark place? I mean, just literally, physically, I remember a recent power outage here in town not that long ago. It was a heavily overcast night. And right, you, you wake up and it's dark and you, you know, nothing, there's no light whatsoever. And you're laying there going, have I had a stroke? Like, why can't I see anything? That's not good. And, you know, you're, eventually after a minute or so you wake up and you realize, oh, it must just be the power is out. But, right, there's, it, it's dark when there's no lights at all. No artificial light, no natural light from the moon or the stars. Eventually, maybe you look out your window and you see some of your neighbors are awake and they may have got a candle or a flashlight, but there's no, no even glow from a distant city or anything. And that sense of that darkness, it can be disorienting, even physically so. Uh, in intense darkness, people, some people especially have vertigo or, or they just feel like they're falling. 
And apart from God's revelation that comes to us in Scripture, that's the condition of our souls. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Now here's a bit of a departure from the pattern. The rest of these statements have had to do with synonyms for God's word, right? His rule, his teaching, and so forth. The fear of the Lord seems to have a bit more to do with our own attitude and response toward it. But we have assurance here that what God reveals does not change in its appropriateness, in its rightness, in its truthfulness or relevance, despite what our surrounding culture might say or despite what's currently in fashion. I love that word endures, right? God's word and the truthfulness of it, it may be mocked, it may be called into question, it may be called out of date or that you're on the wrong side of history or any of these things may be rejected and yet it still stands strong. And for that reason, reverence for it and submission to it will always be the proper and appropriate response to God's word. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Here again we depart a little bit from the pattern. We have a description of God's revelation, but we don't have a corresponding response or result. In many ways, the rest of the psalm provides that corresponding response and result of God's word. And it's here that we come to the great decision that's before us that we have to make. Here's where things get real. We have to decide whether we really believe what the Bible tells us, that it's actually true and that we should take it as such. God's word, it says, is more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey. Now, I'm sure we all understand gold, right? Gold then and now signifies wealth. Gold is something that is always throughout all eras of history seems to be the stable source of wealth, right? You hear about the gold standard and so forth. Honey is a little bit different. Uh, Honey in our culture is pretty commonplace. You can buy it at any grocery store or if you're really cool from a farmer's market or something like that. But it wasn't so common back in biblical times, right? In an era where they didn't have any refined sugar or anything like that, honey was an ultimate delicacy. You remember the story of Samson, right? Killed the lion and then like a week later comes and gets... Have you ever been near the carcass of a large animal that has been outdoors for a week? Can you imagine how gross that was? And yet honey was sufficiently a delicacy that Samson scooped it out of the decaying carcass of a lion beside the road. Honey was just the ultimate in the most delicious and and delicacy type food. So we could talk about in our culture, you know, luxury, vacations, fine wine and food, or tickets to the Super Bowl, whatever for you would represent kind of the ultimate pleasure in life. That's kind of what honey would be for ancient people. I'm going to lump them pretty much both together and talk about just in terms of wealth, because in our society, wealth can pretty much buy you whatever pleasure it might be that you're looking forward to. I believe it was in a book called The Hermeneutical Spiral, where Grant Osborne creates the illustration of buried treasure out in the church parking lot. What if we discovered that there was gold, like bricks and coins of gold, just under the pavement out in that parking lot, or out in this one. It's even newer, right? What if Cypress Pavement just paved over a whole bunch of gold coins and gold bars? Well, I suspect we'd go and find some picks and shovels and start breaking the pavement up, scooping it aside and gathering the gold up, 
because it's, it's gold. There's millions of dollars in gold just under the pavement there for the taking. What if we discovered that there was 10 times that much gold 10 feet down? We'd be getting bigger shovels and we'd be getting probably some backhoes and, and other heavy equipment in there to scoop the earth up and sift through it and get the 10 times. What if we discovered there was 100 times more gold 100 feet down? We'd be starting a gold mine and it wouldn't matter if we had to knock half the school over to get to the gold because we could build a new one with the gold we'd be, we'd be building, right? And his point was that in Scripture we have such a treasure that only gets more powerful and gets richer the further we go into it. But B, um, most of the time we don't actually appreciate what we have and we don't live like it. And there's the choice. Right? What is most valuable in this world? What is most desirable? And then what are we going to do about it? Right, well, well, you say, maybe, maybe this is just one of those Hebrew hyperboles, right? Like when, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about, well, cut off your hands if they, if they cause you to sin or gouge out your eye if it leads you into sin, right? He's not really meaning to do that. King David isn't really meaning that, that the Bible is worth more than actual money, is he? Well, what if he is? What if he is? Okay, here. Let's just, let's just make this real here. So, so we've got here a stack of $1,000 bills. And in my other hand, I have like my old raggedy Bible that you see the cover's all worn and falling apart. Now, which one of these two is actually more valuable? Well, now, don't cheat and say, well, with one of those $1,000 bills, you could buy a whole box full of Bibles. That's cheating and that's missing the point. Which one of these things is actually more valuable in the grand scheme of things in the world that God has made? I know many of us would say, oh yes, of course, Pastor, the Bible's more valuable. But then the question is, are we living in a way that actually says that is so? Sometimes we get a choice that's a one-time deal. That was what President Truman faced when he made the decision to drop the atomic bomb or not to drop the bomb. Because once you use a weapon like that, there's no going back. Right? You talk about Pandora's box or trying to put the genie back in the bottle. You can't do it. Once the weapon's been used, those cards are on the table. Warfare and international politics is never going to look the same again because of that choice in that instance to drop that bomb. Now, I recognize they did it twice, but the results would have been the same just using it once. It's hard to make those choices because you don't get any second chance or any do-over. Once the choice is made, there's no going back. There's no control Z to undo. There's no mulligans. There's nothing. But other times we get a different kind of a choice. We get a choice that's an ongoing one. And that's what we have here. Every day we get presented with choices that will determine whether we actually believe what we say we believe that will test what we actually hold to be most valuable in our lives. The former choice is hard because we don't get any do-overs. The second type of choice is hard precisely because we do, because we have to make that choice day after day after day. Succeeding in these choices amounts to what Eugene Peterson called a long obedience in the same direction. But surely that's not on the same level as choosing whether to drop the atomic bomb that will wipe out hundreds of thousands of people in a moment to say nothing the deaths that happen because of fallout and radiation poisoning. 
But what about the fallout in your soul and the poisoning that might occur there if you choose poorly in this regard? And let's be honest, the choice is real. And as the young people say, the struggle is real. David knew it, right? Jesus knew it. Remember all that, that lengthy passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you can't serve both God and money. Don't store up your treasures on earth. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Same message, just different places and different words. As I said at the beginning, this psalm often gets treated in two parts. But it's actually three. David first looks and sees the handiwork of God in creation, especially in the heavens. That's amazing. He looks at scripture and he sees the perfection of God's revelation in in written form. Wonderful. And then he looks into his own soul. And what does he see there? Well, he sees things that aren't nearly so amazing and so wonderful. And the final part of this psalm tells us why the choice matters of what is ultimately real and what ultimately we submit to. First of all, he talks about errors and hidden faults. The sense of hidden here seems to not be what we might talk about as secret sins, right? When we talk about secret sins, we talk about those things that we know about but other people don't and we prefer it stay that way. David actually seems to be talking about areas that we're blind to where we sin against God or sin against our neighbors and we don't even realize we're doing it. Our natural tendency is to assume that because if we're not aware of the sins that we're committing, then, then they don't count, right? No, not so. They can't just be brushed aside. David recognizes these things for what they are. They're sins. They can't be just brushed aside as, that's just the way I am. That's part of my personality. Everyone has their issues. David says that these things matter, and he wants to be free of them and innocent from them. And so should we. Ignorance and sometimes outright willful blindness to these sorts of issues in our lives is not bliss. It can be extremely destructive. We can lose friends or even employment because of these things that we just don't deal with and we push aside or we don't want to know about them, don't want to deal with them. But worst of all is that some of these things can then grow into the second category of sins that David talks about, presumptuous sins. Right? These are the things that we know full well are sins and yet we just... We go ahead and do those anyhow. Either because we think no one will find out or that God will forgive us anyhow or, well, I've been good over in these other areas for a long time, so a little bit of sin over here, it's all going to balance out. And again, David says, wrong, not so. He knows where that leads. It leads to them having dominion over you. That's what he says here, right? That's his prayer. He doesn't want these presumptuous sins to get a hold of him and get hooks into him and end up with him enslaved to them. Remember, that's what we noted in Romans chapter 1, too. It goes in the same kind of trajectory as this psalm does. Romans 1 ends up with, right, God giving people over to their sins, people enslaved to the sins that they've committed because they've turned away from God. The stakes couldn't be higher, and so that's why it matters. That's why David is praying that God would declare him innocent and that these presumptuous sins wouldn't get dominion over him. So we have, we have this choice to make. Last week I, I brought up that, that classic of cheesy 80s adventure franchises, 
Indiana Jones. Let's go back to that well just for a moment. Remember that scene at the, at the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade where they actually find the Holy Grail? Some of you have seen this movie. And they get to the, the cave where, where the Holy Grail is. And there's this, there's this knight who's, who's been there since the Crusades in the medieval times. It's complicated. He, he's hundreds of years old. But to make it more complicated, there isn't just one Holy Grail there for the taking. This cave is full of of all sorts of cups that could be the Holy Grail that, that Jesus drank from at the Last Supper with his disciples. And, and this Grail Knight says that you have to choose which one it is and that if you drink from it, you will gain everlasting life. And so, of course, we've got Nazis and bad guys. And so the bad guy, what does he do? He chooses the shiniest looking cup that he can find and he fills it up with water from the, the fount thing there and he drinks from it. Right? He's like, ah, it's beautiful. And he gets this peaceful looking expression on his face except it wasn't the real holy grail and he doesn't gain eternal life. What happens is he ages rapidly and then he shrivels up into this you know, decaying corpse and eventually a dusty skeleton in a way that only cheesy 80s movies could depict with like claymation and stuff. And there he is, like just dust on the floor after this transformation of a few seconds. And the the Grail Knight, what does he say? Anybody that's seen this movie? He chose poorly. I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this. We're presented with all sorts of shiny things, whether actual gold things or just things that seem attractive to us. If we want, we can follow our culture's lead in elevating any one of these things to the position of ultimate importance in our lives. Wealth, pleasures, hobbies, causes, whatever. We can choose those things because we think that's where, that's where the good, that's where satisfaction and contentment are ultimately to be found. We can choose them, but if we do, they'll leave our souls shriveled and dead. And it won't just be a fictional movie character saying, you chose poorly. It will be the Lord God Almighty. Remember, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that very sobering text we heard just a few weeks ago when Jesus said people will come to him in that day, but he will have to say to them, I never knew you. Now, all this kind of sounds like a major downer, but it doesn't have to be. David spends the the last portion of this psalm looking inward And he clearly recognizes the guilt and the sin and the potential for more sin that's there. But he doesn't end there. He ends on a hopeful note. He ends with a prayer that his life and his works and the the meditations of his heart would be acceptable to God, right? That he would be acceptable before God inwardly in his thoughts and attitudes and outwardly in his words and actions, He ends with hope that he is making and will ultimately make the right choice. And so can we. Here's the thing. When we choose to submit to God's word as more valuable and more important than wealth or pleasure, we're not just submitting to to a moral code or to written rules that we've just got to grit our teeth and and somehow do, right? Do you remember the passage that, that we read earlier that we had read? In the past, in the time when King David wrote this psalm, God spoke 
to the ancestors through the prophets, different times, in different ways. But ultimately and climactically, God spoke. God has spoken through his son, Jesus Christ. The word became flesh, as the Gospel of John tells us. Now, that's not in any way to minimize the importance of God's written word. But it's to remember that it all points us to Jesus Christ, the living word, our living Lord, who is ascended to the Father's right hand, who is interceding for us, who is present with us by his spirit and will come again to write all things. When we submit to the word, it's not just a matter of gritting our teeth and forcing ourselves to do something we'd rather not, like trying to keep our New Year's resolutions or a new diet plan, right? Like doing your workout when you'd rather be sleeping or eating a few carrots when a bag of chips sounds really good. Submitting to God's written word means committing to his living word. Choosing the word is more valuable than wealth or pleasure means encountering the Lord of the word. When you open up the word and you read it in an attitude of of humility and expectancy, Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit is present to you. To, To steal a phrase from Karl Barth, he comes striding forth as the Lord of grace and judgment to meet the hearer. Man, It's a lot more than just opening it up to get some information, right? It's opening it up to meet the Lord of the universe when you read what's in here. If you do so with an attitude of submission, expectancy, and humility. Jesus Christ himself is present when we read his word. I don't think we can put, I don't think we can put any price on that reality. I'd like to close with a a line from the old book of common prayer this is something that I pray for myself I pray for our congregation on a regular basis again it's old 1600s language but there's a prayer for the right attitude as we come to God's word right because it's easy it's easy to come to God's word as something where we can get some information that'll prove us right in a theological debate we're having. It's easy to come to God's word with an attitude of finding a grounds for being morally superior to someone else, those kind of things. It's easy to come to God's word looking to kind of justify our, our own course of action or our own attitudes. It's more difficult to come to God's word with an attitude of submission to, to do what it says to put ourselves under it and to value it as the highest of of all things. So I'll close with this. Let us pray. Lord, that it may please thee to give all thy people increase of grace to hear meekly thy word and to receive it with pure affection and to bring forth the fruits of the Spirit. Lord, we pray that as we are faced not just one time with having to make the choice of of what we're ultimately going to submit ourselves and our lives to, that we would have your grace in making that choice. Lord, we live in a a world, in a culture that values wealth and, and pleasures, and we can offer ourselves to those things if we want to. But as, as David pointed out here in, 
these psalms, in this psalm and in, in many other places in Scripture, offering ourselves to those things will leave us enslaved to those things, enslaved ultimately to sins. And that's not a place where we want to be, Lord. We want to offer ourselves and submit ourselves to your holy word, your written word in the Bible and our living word in our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. We want to, as we've just prayed, hear that word meekly and to receive it with pure affection. We don't want to come to your word, Lord, with an attitude of it serving us or our ends, Lord. We want to come to your word humbly that we might serve your ends and serve your kingdom. May we do that even today and this week and in the weeks ahead as we look to your word, as we look to these choices that we have to make on a daily basis in what's, what is ultimately important, what we submit ourselves to, what we offer ourselves to. May your spirit be present to us as we read your word and by your spirit, Jesus Christ himself, in whose name we pray, amen.